0: I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archives for November 21st, 2021. This week, the Department of Justice indicted two Iranian nationals for allegedly participating in a coordinated cyber campaign to intimidate and influence American voters in the 2020 presidential election. This, along with the surge in ransomware this year, demonstrate how offensive cyber operations continue to play a dangerous and outsized role in geopolitics. For today's episode, I chose a panel discussion from May 28th,
3: 2019 between some of the country's top national security experts, where they talk about how cyber weapons are changing the landscape of modern warfare.
1: I'm Matthew Kahn, and you're listening to the Warfare Podcast, May 28th, 2019. From the Washington Post's February report that U.S. Cyber Command took a Russian disinformation operation offline on the day of the 2018 midterms, to the Pentagon's announcement last year that it would take more active measures to challenge adversaries in cyberspace, recent news about U.S. cyber operations and strategic planning suggests that they are playing an increasingly important role in how the U.S. approaches geopolitics. So how should the public understand how the United States is deploying its cyber tools to achieve its goals? To help answer that question, last month at the 2019 Verify Conference, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation hosted a panel discussion featuring former CIA Deputy Director Avril Haynes, former Pentagon Chief of Staff Eric Rosenbach, and New York Times National Security Correspondent David Sanger. They talked about how the U.S. projects power in cyberspace, the difficulties of developing norms to govern state behavior in that domain, and more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 421, of Real Haynes, Eric Rosenbach, and David Sanger on U.S. offensive cyber operations.
3: This is a panel on U.S. offensive uh, cyber activity, which is in many ways the hardest thing to go cover, in part because of the great secrecy surrounding it. I would argue excessive secrecy, but we'll get into that discussion uh, a little bit uh, later on. But also uh, difficult because it, it immediately takes you to really fascinating questions about what constitutes cyber deterrence, which we brought up a little bit uh, at dinner uh, last night uh, in the, the dinner conversation. And then also the questions of The legal limits, what kind of international norms you would want, because, of course, any international norm which we would agree on, say that limited interference in elections or the power grid or whatever, is also going to be a limit on the United States. And it's actually the United States that would be more likely to observe the limit than its adversaries. So these all get to be pretty complicated. Another reason we wanted to take this up here is, uh, as Director Comey alluded to, this morning, um, there's a fascinating, difficult dance that goes on when reporters have a story that's got a lot of national security sensitivities, particularly in the cyber arena, and usually a discussion that goes on with officials inside the government about the risks of publishing it, and some really hard editorial decisions to be made, and we don't always end up uh, not not no no surprise the people involved in those conversations don't always end up fully satisfied any of them and I'm pleased to say that um I'm I'm, I remain friends uh with both Eric and Avril after some hard conversations at various moments that we had when you guys were were in were in government so we're going to try to surface a little bit of that just so that you get a sense of what some of those trade-offs are like so um let me um, let me start with this, Eric, you often make the point that if you watch the movies or read the New York Times, you would think that the United States was constantly at uh, you know conducting cyber operations, and that perception I think has grown in the current administration because they talk about persistent presence in other networks as part of their strategy and persistent yeah. suggests some kind of ongoing element and you've made the point. We don't do these as a country all that often. So talk to us a little bit about that.
0: To, to start with, I think it is really important to recognize for both the Department of Defense and CIA that it's a very conservative approach to doing offensive cyber operations. You should start with understanding what that is. It's not NSA or CIA hacking someone's network to steal secrets or steal information. That's not an offensive op. This is when you're doing an operation and you have a platform, you have access, and you have a payload, and the intent is to have an effect that will most likely stop whatever that network is doing in some way, and we can talk more about that. But because of the fear of establishing a precedent that would unleash the power of offensive cyber operations, because of a respect for the law, and quite frankly, because it's surprisingly hard to do offensive cyber operations, we don't do them that often, so during the time I was Assistant Secretary and Pentagon Chief of Staff. I can count on one hand, literally, the number of, of offensive operations that we did at the Department of Defense.
3: And, I will take us a little bit. So that's DOD, and that's running now largely through Cyber Command. But, of course, there are offensive ops that uh, run through the intelligence world and through um, uh, a different legal structure. So just walk us through a little bit of that.
2: So, with the classic sort of caveat, which is to say that to the extent that the intelligence world in, deals with offensive cyber operations, they mm-hmm. would never talk about them right. and speak about them, but there are different legal frameworks under which the intelligence you know community essentially affects operations and engages as opposed to DOD. And usually what you hear is Title 50 operations, essentially, and Title 50 is National Security Act um, and particularly it defines covert action and it talks about what it constitutes and what's the process for covert action and among the things that has to be true in the context of covert action is that you actually intend the US hand effectively not to be apparent to the rest of the world, right? So essentially it would only occur in a scenario in which you're not actually talking about what the cyber operation is. But I, I mean, I fully endorse what Eric said. So please recognize that it's entirely consistent with what Eric said. It's not as if we are doing, you know, all of these cyber op- offensive cyber operations in the intelligence community, and DoD is only doing a handful. Right.
0: It, it gets back more to the tradition of the military, where if you're conducting a military operation, it's against the law to deny that you're doing it, right? For very good reasons of transparency. So if it's under Title 10, that's the part of the law that allows the military to do operations, you can't lie to the press and say, we are not conducting cyber operations in Syria right now, if asked. Under covert action, you could legally do that, right? There's a big difference. Now, does that mean that you have to tell Sanger when he calls and says, hey, I've got a story that you're doing such and such in North Korea? Will you confirm it? you don't have to confirm it, but you can't lie about it publicly. So that's where the dance of trying to be transparent, of course, adhere to the law, but not, you know, give away really important national security operations is a little fraught sometimes.
3: Let me, by example, describe one here where I can say this and you guys can't, so we, we understand on the details why you'll be a little elliptical. But in the case of probably the biggest signature case that has come out, which is Olympic Games, the operation against Iran's nuclear program, which goes back a good number of years now. Part of the revelation came, not because of any leak from a human being, an official talking or anything, but the code literally got out and started floating around the world. And so there were hundreds of thousands of copies of something that the world, that the professionals in the business began to call Stuxnet, that was code of mysterious origin that, that got out and around. Um, and that led as people pulled apart the code. And as we noticed that, uh, it was activated against groups of 164 machines, which just happened to be the way the Iranians arrayed their centrifuges in groups of 164 that began journalistically to lead to the conclusion of what the what the target is you guys can't talk about olympic games but what you can talk about i think is the risk that goes on in cases like this where once code is out whether you're doing it under uh, title 10 or title 50 there's always a risk of the operation as there is in any kind of military or covert operation that the code's going to get out and around and then suddenly you're sort of left with this question of how you talk about it or how you don't talk about it. In the case of Olympic Games, nobody said anything.
2: Yeah, I think it's honestly so much worse in the context of cyber. It's really interesting because I, you know, you have sort of a sense right now to some extent right, of what the technology is that allows you to identify uh, and attribute essentially activities that are going on. But over time, obviously, the technology is going to improve, and it's going to be possible to go back and look at networks and look at the history of things and see things that today you can't see, but, you know, in a year or two, you may be able to see. And so the likelihood of you being able to keep things really non-attributable over a very long period of time is very low in many respects, and it's really challenging for folks that are working in these areas.
0: Um, One thing that I think is important to understand if you're just trying to cover this is David just said the code was floating around out there and there were thousands of copies of it. What he didn't say, and this is not confirming or denying Stuxnet, but the forensics on that code, it was encrypted five different ways, right? It was designed by what I've read in the newspapers, not David's book, to... only operate against a very specific network and when outside of that network no longer be effective. So that's exactly what you would do, hypothetically speaking. If you were planning an offensive cyber operation and you're thinking about platform, access, and then this is the payload, just like in any military operation, you would look at the munition and you would say, is this the right type of payload for this mission? Will it not have too much collateral damage? How are you accounting for whether or not it would escape the network. How are you mitigating all of these risks? Because of course you wouldn't want to happen what happened in the case of Ukraine when the Russians were doing offensive cyber against a financial system. What did they do? They used a type of ransomware to hit Ukrainian financial systems, no mitigation in place, worldwide um, not Petcha, uh spread that takes down Maersk, Merck, all of these large multinationals, right? That's how you do not do offensive operations.
3: And in the case of the Stuxnet code, it also had an expiration date on it built, built into it that yeah. basically said this code goes dead on such and such a, such and such a date and um, uh, with no offense to the lawyer on the panel that 's something lawyers put into code and tells you it 's actually an, an early indicator of what kind of country Launched it if in fact it was from a country because it was something that went through extensive legal review and was narrowed in that regard and that helped us sort of figure out what was going on. Eric, you in the class that you teach, uh, which is an enormously popular class at the at the Kennedy School, um, you come up with a lot of hypotheticals about how you'd go do a cyber op, walking through that platform access and payload. Give us a, give us a hypothetical case where. Or maybe a real case like ISIS, which is one that, of course, has been discussed pretty publicly, where you can sort of walk us through what that would look like.
0: So here, this is a hybrid, hypothetical, real-world case. Imagine you're the Secretary of Defense, and your primary goal is to get rid of ISIS in Syria or Iraq. And you understand that they're using cyber to recruit, raise money, operate, do all of their command and control. It would be almost just like too easy to say, well, I've got this big Cyber Command. We spend $8 billion a year on it just on offensive stuff. Why can't we take down their network? So the hypothetical would be if you're ISIS and you're operating on the internet using TCP IP, why wouldn't you use Cyber Command in Syria or Iraq where you have the authority to operate to take it down? That would be the hypothetical. And then you would go through some of the things you could do. Would you just take down their recruiting network? Would you just take out their C2 network? Would you take out temporarily critical infrastructure in Syria or Iraq that's helping ISIS operate, knowing it could be reversible? And in the military, most often the commander will say, well, please just let me drop a bomb on it because then I'll know it's dead. And then you think, okay, well, why shouldn't we just drop five 500-pound bombs on the power station rather than trying to monkey around the cyber? So when you go through all those things, that's you know kind of the case. Then you can talk through what are the legal implications, operational implications, intel gain loss implications, political implications, all of these things, and you know something like that might be done with the pure intelligence community as
3: well. So Avril. Um Pretend hypothetically, because I realize this never happened in real life, that Eric shows up in the uh, situation room with a proposed cyber operation, maybe against ISIS or something like that. And you've got to grill him to make sure this is the right operation, that it's aimed correctly, that it's legal, that he's got the restrictions on it that he just described. Walk us through what you do to put him on the coals. Or what you did to put them on which the poles. She
0: was so good at doing it. Avril was so awesome <laughs> in doing this in a very you know, civil, polite way and making us better, too.
2: So uh, He makes um, it sound
3: like he enjoyed the process. I know.
2: Well, <laughs> I <know>. not that. Neither <laughs> of us loved it in different ways. But I, I think there's a couple things. One is already many of the things that we've stated are, are sort of the frame through which Eric would be bringing something like that to us, which is to say that we'd be saying, look, we're trying to achieve X, whatever it might be in the context of a particular policy and, uh, you know, destroying, degrading, uh, deterring ISIS from the following activities. And so we think this is gonna be something that will help us to do that. And it's sort of the best alternative as compared to other things. So one thing is that we're certainly not looking at it through the stovepipe of just cyber, but we're looking at it across a whole series of other possible options. And we're weighing, you know, as, as Eric really highlighted, essentially how we can be most effective here with sort of the lowest amount of risk and collateral impact in a variety of different ways against what it is that we're trying to achieve. So that's one piece of it. But the second piece would be from a process perspective, we'd bring it in and we'd bring it to the lawyers group, which would be essentially having lawyers from different agencies and departments who would look at this particular issue. And then also to the policy community, which would also have different agencies and departments at the table. And you know, some of the value of that can be that Essentially, DOD is coming forward and saying this is what we think makes the most sense in this context. And another agency or department, like a you know State Department or somebody else, would say, "Well, that's great, but uh, you know, here's sort of some of the diplomatic concerns I might have." So, for example, you know, again, hypothetically, many operations will touch through cyber not just the country that you're targeting, or you know, or the individuals within that country, or you know, and your own, but also third countries, and you have to think about. What that means, what going through their infrastructure means, how, you know, the degree to which you look for consent or other things like that. You want to think about what are some of the implications for them. Uh, You know, other parts of the US government will be thinking about whether or not uh, if you're transiting um, networks and so on that are essentially uh, privately owned and controlled, how do they perceive that? What are the issues that might be involved there? And they also want to understand the frame under which we're doing this because we know if we're doing it, then presumably we're saying it's okay for others to do it. And how does that look in that context? Let's just
3: dig down on that a little bit with some examples where just those kind of issues came up. So in the ISIS case, some of the recruitment that they were doing. The servers were physically based in Europe. I think Germany certainly had one. I think the Netherlands may have had. There were a couple spread around, which led to the frustration in this case that as soon as you brought something down, it it would appear someplace else because it was stored in some cloud service that you may have missed. Do you go and talk to the Germans about it? Do you just do your operation and hope the Germans don't find you doing it inside their network? How do you go about it?
2: I mean, hypothetically, again, as we go through these, it is—it's um, an important question, and and part of the question has some legal content, and some of it is policy content, right? So, um, some lawyers will make the argument that Article Two of the UN Charter, which basically deals with sovereignty, can in fact be tripped in this area. In other words, that by doing certain things on networks, that you may be infringing on another country's sovereignty in a way that actually could violate it and therefore require consent. Other lawyers will say, you know, essentially it depends on the amount of activity, et cetera, and will disagree over when you've tripped that line. But as a policy matter overall, you obviously are thinking about working with other countries on – a variety of issues including cyber and you want to make sure that you're being a good actor and you also want to think about what are the norms that you want to create in this space that you want other countries to pay attention to in the context of doing the same thing through the united states right because we have a lot of cyber infrastructure and we're you know unlikely to be untouched by operations that other countries are interested in engaging in so all of those are the kinds of things that you need to think through and you know context matters and what the particular operation is and which country and so on.
0: So here are maybe some hypothetical specific examples in the ISIS case. If CyberCom came to an assistant secretary or the secretary and said, we have a plan in which we can take down financial sector resources for ISIS in Syria. We can do it, we have a platform, it's based in some country, this is where we'll launch it from, we have access to the network, we have a payload that would work. We put them through the ringer. We bring it to the National Security Council. This is all hypothetical. We go in there. We would think this is a great idea. This will take away most of their money, prohibit them from, inhibit them from doing it in the past. But then you would go into the National Security Council and Treasury would say, well, you know, have you thought about the fact that people will then do that to us? And they'll see what happened in some way and it'll leak out and they'll say, but the U.S.? is attacking banks and financial infrastructure, why shouldn't they do that too? And that's where you think about the norms process, and it was always helpful for us. You could say that very often when it came to critical infrastructure in the energy sector, would have been easier to take some of that down. But here's where that doesn't always play, um, is like when you're talking about the Germans or the Swedes, they're like the US, they'll always respect international law or norms, But if you say you're going to do norm building so that the Russians or the Chinese or the North Koreans follow that example, you're totally kidding yourselves, right? We would be in negotiations with the Russians or the Chinese about not attacking critical infrastructure during peacetime, and they would say, this is really important. Let's all sign on to this. And at the same time, they'd be hacking our critical infrastructure, hacking our elections, hacking our banks, you know, so it's a little more complicated than the ideal. Norms take a long time to develop, so we should uphold the highest standard, but... You have to wonder, if you're on the receiving end of it too much, what you do before you get to wanting to have some deterrence posture.
3: Well, let me push you guys for a moment on the the norms issue. So this has been a discussion for a long time. The United Nations had a group of experts that met on norms. That kind of fell apart about two years ago. The Obama administration talked about norms a lot. You don't hear that conversation as much in the Trump administration. You don't see them uh, getting out to go do that as much, and in fact... President Trump signed an executive order back in August that no longer required, as PPD-20 did in the in the um, Obama uh, era, that the president has to sign off on every uh, single or every major uh, cyber operation, devolve a lot of the authority down, at least as they publicly described it. We haven't seen the document, I should say, but it's been described in some briefings, uh, including by... Um, by John Bolton. So let's imagine for a moment that the Trump administration decided it wanted to put some norms together. And Secretary Pompeo distributed a memo and said, okay, we're going to start with the Russians and the Chinese because they're the baddest actors and the biggest ones. And we're going to see if we can reach an agreement that says we won't be inside each other's electric grids. We won't mess with each other's election systems. We won't go after." the infrastructure that could most hurt vulnerable individuals, hospitals, nursing homes, emergency communications, things like that. First of all, as you said, you'd have no assurance that the Russians and the Chinese would go along. In reality, they might go along and sign the paper. But secondly, would our intelligence community and would our DOD be willing to sign up to that? Because it would limit the options of a future president.
2: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Can I, let me step back just for a moment and sort of give you my kind of, my perspective on how to frame it in a way. And because I think it it then helps explain what my answer would be to that. And and Eric may have a better answer as well. But look, today we know that an increasing number of states are pursuing capacity for cyber operations, right, to pursue their own interests and objectives, obviously, in cyberspace. And we also know that the United States is in a particularly vulnerable position in the sense that there's a kind of an asymmetric state-to-state scenario where if I were to look at it as a sort of a what's the paradigm if I'm an adversary looking at the United States on cyber I'd say you know we want to hold at risk things that are of high value to the United States of which there are many things in the cyber realm in a sense at relatively low cost to us in a way that is not conventionally escalatory and where we can get away with as much as possible without sort of creating the kind of counterpunch that we might in a conventional scenario, right? And and cyber is perfect for that. And, um, and as a consequence, you want to set up a, a framework from a policy perspective that ultimately prevents cyberspace from becoming a significant source of instability, right? And you want to Basically, protect against vulnerabilities in the context of uh, you know our own cyber interests, and you want to actually do this obviously while preserving the connectivity and all of the value that we get from these areas. And so, one of the key tools that you use, particularly in the state-to-state concept, is building a framework. And the framework, which can be a legal framework, and a normative framework, and a variety of, of different ways that you're doing it will be things to uh, you know, prevent misperception, to reduce the chance of miscalculation, to essentially deter aggressive behavior along the lines of what you're describing Russia might be engaging in or others, to collaborate in order to reduce vulnerability, to promote stability, all of those things. And you set up lines where you say these are things that we don't want others to be engaging in of a particular type whether it be you know going after our critical infrastructure as a perfect example of this and you also hopefully begin to identify legitimate responses in the event that that occurs as another way of identifying here is in fact what could be the result of that kind of aggressive behavior and uh, most people in deterrence theory will say, you also, in addition to sort of building your framework and clarifying these things, you also want to take some action. Sometimes you want to be able to produce, uh, you know, to engage in activity that indicates that your threat is credible in effect, right, um, to say that you will in fact respond and you'll be able to respond in a way that's suitable. And also, you know, under some theories, right, there is the uh, chance of being able to demonstrate that if an adversary goes into a certain space that they're actually not going to be able to achieve what they want to achieve, it's sort of deterrence by denial, and there's a fair amount of question as to whether or not you can really credibly do that in cyberspace, but it may be possible over time in certain circumstances. Yeah, so enough
3: redundancy in the system, for example. Exactly. Might well. There
2: might be some opportunities to do this. Okay, so so in that context, one of the great advantages of building frameworks like this, you know, for and I look at analogies with the Law of the Sea and other places like that, is that even if you're building a normative framework and your main concern is Russia, and as Eric says, Russia's unlikely to pay attention nearly as much as other countries, right? What it may still do for you is the ability to say with your partners and allies, that's unacceptable behavior. We are going to respond in the following way. We will join hands in doing so. That increases the cost to a Russia, right? And over time, the question is whether or not you can have a credible threat of a response that they believe will, in fact, occur and that they see as a concern. And does that deter them from that type of behavior? And that does work historically in certain circumstances. And the question is, can we do that credibly in cyber? But there are a lot of challenges specific to cyber I'd say, in building this kind of normative framework that all of us have experienced. There's the fact that there are so many stakeholders, so much of your infrastructure and your cyberspace is owned by the private sector, controlled by the private sector, need to be a part of this. I think Alex's point about the fact that so many decisions are made and trade-offs are made without actually having the kind of robust conversations that you might have is a very good one. There's the fact that you're able to take action in one country and have an impact in another, right? The attribution issues. There's a whole series of challenges that you encounter in cyber. doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means it's hard, and it's something that needs to be worked through in a variety of ways. But That's why I believe that actually developing a normative framework is not crazy in the context of bad actors like Russia in that scenario.
3: Well, Eric, you had to deal with cyber for deterrence purposes a lot. Is a a legitimate reason to conduct a cyber operation by cyber command to deliberately send the signal, hey, we can do a little bit here, but it's going to get a whole lot worse for you if you keep messing around?
0: Yeah, I think, of course, because deterrence is based in perception. And if the bad guys perceive that they can hurt you, whoever the you is, and there's no response, they'll continue to hurt you. It's just like it is in criminal law, right? You need to be able to show action. The action could be something non-cyber. It could be sanctions. It could be something as simple as public attribution. So think back to the Sony cyber case it's the first destructive attack against the US. There's a big question whether we should attribute, whether the government should even do anything because Sony's cyber defenses were so bad. Would you set the precedent that the government's always gonna run in and you know, help? But to me, the, the threat of an offensive response is very important to the overall defense of the US in particular, because if you don't have that and you never exercise it and you don't use it, then we're probably the most vulnerable country on earth. And all the bad guys will. Then there's there's one other point that is really important, is it's really complicated to figure all of these things out. But if you don't do a lot of advanced operational work before something bad happens, you're not gonna have an option to respond. Right? Offensive cyber is not this like magic cyber nuke that you say, okay, like send in the aircraft and we drop the cyber nuke over Russia tomorrow. It's Very painstaking work. You have the platform, which is in some other country in the world. You gain access. You hold persistent access. You try not to be discovered. You have something in there sending information back in some ways, right? This is all hypothetically speaking. (laughs) When you then want to have a payload, you have to have all those other things. That could take years. It could take months. And so you don't want to be so... Conservative and kind of hamstrung by all the complexity that you don't actually have an option for the President when he or she says, "Please
3: now I need the offensive option against this bad guy so when General Macasoni talks about persistent presence that 's really what he 's talking about going into foreign networks, having your implants there, they may simply be doing surveillance, but as you suggest it creates the infrastructure so that if you decide you're going to inject code later and try to actually deliver the, the payload, yeah. you've got a way to go do it. Yeah.
0: And this, this should not sound crazy. I mean, every intelligence agency in the world is using persistent access to collect secrets. That's what they do. It's not some crazy idea. But if you're doing that in a way that is thinking more specifically about prepping for an offensive operation... It could be different, and it triggers an entirely different risk portfolio or risk uh, profile for a policymaker. You could say, why are you in this network in Krasnovia? If they find you, they're going to know we're anticipating doing something bad against them, which can escalate, just like Avril was saying.
3: This this raises a really interesting question, because when – when the Department of Homeland Security comes out with reports like they did a year ago, just about now, and says, the Russians are all through our electric grid, right? And they it's an unclassified report, yeah. come out and do it. And, you know, it gets big headlines in the U.S. And people freak out and say, oh, my God, the Russians are getting ready to turn off all the power from Boston to Washington or Seattle to L.A. or whatever. Because your mind immediately goes to the worst-case scenario of what you could do when you have that access. And so our government turns that out as a warning. And yet what you're telling us is, at the same time, we're putting implants in foreign networks around the world, but we expect everybody else to think, oh, it's all right, it's the Americans, it's benign, it's fine, they're just collecting data. Well, before I, I
0: like go <laughs> to jail or something, Sanger, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying... Confirming that the U.S. is putting destructive okay. implants. in Let me say critical. that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, you, can, you can say I'm that saying the Russians implants. are. Yes, I'm not
3: That's saying it. that they're destructive. I'm saying that yes. there's implants there, and that those implants look a lot like the implants the Russians might put in our electric grid. And yet we're supposed to expect them to think that our intentions are benign, and our public is thinking here the Russians are getting ready to flip everything off, Avril? Uh, this is
0: again the only thing I would say. If hypothetically that were true, it would be done in a way completely differently than it would be done by Russia, China, North Korea. The, the US, it would be the exceptional case that we would leave hanging out in critical infrastructure something that we were going to use for attack. And if that were the case, it would only, at least in the Obama administration, have been done for a very, very, very good reason, and fitting
3: within law, you know, so. Alvar, why couldn't we do that for deterrence purposes? I am gonna say, you wanna get ready to turn off our power, you know?
2: I think the Russians do it for deterrence. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to watch how Putin and Russia talks about, you know, their, sort of uh, capacity and and, uh, effectiveness within cyber. And I think one of the challenges in deterrence strategy, this is certainly not a rocket science point, but um, is that you do get caught between wanting to publicize enough right, in order to actually have effective deterrence, but at the same time um, not so much that you actually escalate things. And I think it's one of the issues that's been around cyber for a while. One of the debates I remember early on around cyber and about announcing it right was this sort of concern that we would basically start an arms race in the context of cyber and it, we have a similar issue in the context of space it's been one of those places where we've sort of tried very hard not to create an arms race you know and back in the 60s we talked about not having it be militarized and so on and then over time it's become in effect an arms race on some I was level. About to say,
3: but and in cyber yeah. you you had that arms race and you probably would have had it even if you hadn't announced cyber command
0: yeah, probably. You know, this this is interesting. I was just thinking back. Before 2010, it was illegal to even say that the United States did offensive cyber operations. Uh-huh. And we did that through the defense authorization bill because the secretary and the undersecretary at the time, Michelle Flournoy, said, we need a way to be more transparent, to signal to our adversaries that we are working on this stuff. But that's pretty crazy. That was only nine years ago. You couldn't even say that we did it. So when Sanger says, oh, this is all too secretive, no one ever talks about it, there's like a broader context here that you have to understand. First of all, it's rarely done. Second of all, we do actually speak pretty openly about it when we can, at least the Department of Defense, under the law, like we did in the case of ISIS and others. And there's this very, very rigorous process by which the vetting for an operation would ever occur, too. You know, So it's probably not as scary as one might think you know, when you're on the outside. And
3: 2010 was also the year that the Stuxnet virus began traveling around and people began to have a, a chance to go, you know, see it and discover it. That uh, was coincidental that that happened at the same time you guys were coming up with this discussion that uh, Michelle Flournoy and others led.
0: Uh, I don't know if I can talk that much about that.
3: Okay. Um, talk to us a little bit, before we go to questions from everybody, about the process when reporters come to you and say, we're getting ready to go write about this because you're, you're in a really hard position. If it's a title 50 event, you you basically can't say anything because supposed to, the law requires it be deniable. If it's title 10, you can try to say, look, we can talk to you about this in this part, but we actually think revealing a, B and C would be harmful. And, um, in the uh, the Cartwright case, a lot of the discussions that I had with the CIA it was before you arrived at the CIA. Ever, it was with your uh, predecessor, Mike Morrell, came out in in publicly released you know documents at the, at the time. But that was a that was an effort by uh, your predecessor to say, hey, look, we wish you didn't publish any of this, but if you're going to publish, know that this stuff could be long term harmful, and this is less so. So tell us a little bit about what happens when reporters come to you with this. I think um, so Sanger used to call
0: almost every other month and say, "Hey, Eric, I've got this story. Can I come talk to you?" And the first thing I would do is say, "David, do you have to do this?" He said, "Yes, it's in the public interest, and he also knew it was going to be a big story, and he 's very well intentioned. Then I would call my lawyer and then I would say, "Come over so there are other people around and it's a really hard thing because
3: I. Oh wait, my recollection was you were outnumbered by about four to one with the lawyers. Yeah, yeah that,
0: <laughs>
3: there's fifteen
0: thousand lawyers in the Department of
3: Defense.
2: So, <laughs> they were all um, in one room. Yeah, <laughs> it,
0: because it, like you do want to do tra- be transparent. You would never ever lie. That that always comes back to haunt you. But on the other hand, David would often have parts of a story, some of which were absolutely right. At least half of it was like science fiction, right? And something that someone was imagining. And you're trying to figure out how to explain that without confirming the existence of something, right? Can you all imagine that? If you're trying to not confirm the existence of something, but tell him half of the story he has is like science fiction. And I always had a lot of respect for him, David, because he he was trying to get the story out. He was trying to inform the public. Personally, I, I... Don't think that there is huge public value in disclosing sensitive, offensive cyber operations when you know that story is going to lead the bad guys to go through their network and take away any advantage we would have in terms of protecting the country, right? If we were committing any violation of the law, civil liberties, anything like that, fine. But there are ways in the U.S. government, especially through the oversight committees, where people see this and know it, the, the public does not have a right to know about the most sensitive operations that are going on when they're going on. Later, that could be fine, too. But,
3: you know, that's a a hard thing. And Eric, differentiate this from, say, our coverage of the drone program, uh, one-man vehicles, where, again, when you guys came into office, nobody could go up and even use the phrase drone or UAV from the White House press podium. But over time, President Obama began to give speeches about it, yeah He began to describe the rules about it. It moved from the dark to at least partial light because there was a recognition that there was blowback from what was going on here. Why is cyber different from then it 's not, but that
0: 's the whole point there's in the evolution of certain operations, there are times at which you need it to be held as a secret so that you can accomplish you know what the interest is there's still you know, hundreds, thousands of people scrutinizing it, lawyers, someone as smart, as totally ethical as Avril Haines, grilling people inside the government, the Hill as well. That doesn't have to play out on the front page of the New York Times. Eventually, some things can. And so when we went public with the fact that we were conducting cyber operations against ISIS, you know, I was surprised how big a deal it was that the press was saying, oh, they're actually talking about it, and they're saying they're trying to do it. The mistake we made is we talked too much about it, and then when we did that, they packed up all their stuff, and then we weren't able to deteriorate them, and they became more lethal. You know, there was, and your there boss was a boss the time,
3: Ash Carter wrote later on when he got out, that he thought that the operation wasn't anywhere near as effective as it needed to be.
0: Yeah, that's, that's different than being transparent. That has more to do with the fact that not when Avril was there, the CIA was completely against any operation because they wanted to collect intelligence, they said. And the leadership at Cybercom had different ideas than the Secretary of Defense about what would be effective.
3: Avril, you want to take up this issue of the sensitivity of making these public and I mean, considering that it was President Obama himself who, during Olympic Games, warned everybody, you know, at some point when this gets out and these things all get out, other nations will use the American use of offensive cyber as a justification for their attacking us, even if it's not a legitimate comparison. Why isn't this as legitimate a subject for the reporters in this room to go right about as drone strikes or special operations?
2: I mean, I think, as Eric said, I think it is. I think the question is, what are you revealing in the context of the situation? So for me, um, drones or RPAs or UAVs, that was this place where we spent a lot of time trying to increase transparency about the framework to really try to explain, sort of here is the legal theory surrounding this. These are the activities that we see as being within the box. These are things that are outside of the box. And it took us... I mean, years to do, right? We started with Harold Coe's, you know, very first uh, initial few paragraphs describing a legal framework uh, back. I think that was in 2012 or 2013. Earlier
3: than that, even, yeah. Yeah,
2: maybe even earlier. Anyway, and and I remember, you know, the interagency clearance that went through that literally lasted to. The day he was speaking, somebody had to tell him, like by hand signal, you know, that paragraph is okay to to speak, right? So he had it there, and he was waiting to find out, like, did it get cleared, right? And um, and he took an enormous amount of work because part of what's happening in that context is that you're not only revealing things, what you're doing is you're gelling that this is the view of the entire US government, the interagency process (coughs) on the framework for these kinds of operations. And that required some time to sort of get through in a sense. And similarly in the context of cyber, there are a lot of things that are still gelling essentially through the US government and otherwise that you wanna promote, but you want to promote and be transparent about the framework for all of the reasons that you just identified, which is it's not only important internationally, by the way, and I think it is important internationally as a signaling point and to say these are the things that we think are acceptable to do to us and here are the things that we think are acceptable to do to others and so on under these circumstances. But it's also important so that you can effectively tell the American people and allow them to be part of the discussion over whether or not the framework you've produced is the right framework because these are important issues and you're using force or you're using... You know, tools of state in a sense that have impact, and people should have an opportunity to discuss those. But we've and i have gone backwards that. on that. But, you publish but your me, framework, and but the, let me get to this sure. point because I think what is really challenging is that, in the context of that, there's a lot of interest in the details of particular operations or of the discussions that are happening in the moment or you know who brought the piece of paper in to say that this and and I I completely understand that that helps you tell a story in a sense but from our perspective that tends to be the stuff that isn't what we want to be or need to be transparent about. That those are things that, you know, what's happening when is going to be an operational issue that we want to protect. Or the fact that it's occurring in this particular country may be a diplomatic issue for us and those types of things. And I think that's a a piece of the the challenge.
0: This is a really important distinction, right? So the public definitely should know the process by which these decisions will be made and weigh in on decisions whether or not we should do it, but what I'm talking about are specific operations and specific operational capabilities, which even now with special operations or with drones still is held very secret. So here's a here's, uh, mind exercise. Imagine there's this magic space laser that a really bad country has developed and it'll potentially burn up the US. And hypothetically, We've found in cyber option that we're keeping very secret, but we know that if this laser is gonna go operational, we could use the cyber operation to disable it. Sanger gets the story that we have the capability. He's like, hey Eric, I got the story that you have a cyber operation against the magic space laser, I'm going public. I say, David, why would you do that? If you do that, the space laser will work. The only possible chance we had to take out the space laser was with this secret operation and you want to put it on the front page of the New York Times, there's something about that that is very hard, but because it's so specific and the repercussions of transparency are so significant that you have to think a lot more thoroughly about it than you do if it's just like this is the process, we're making these decisions, there always has to be, should be hopefully some trust in the government making the decision.
3: Oftentimes, and we'll go out to questions for everybody here in in just one minute, when these come up, They're rarely the operation that you've planned for the future. They're usually something where there's been evidence of what has happened. So in Olympic Games, as we said before, the code got out accidentally, but the code was out. So people had something to examine, and we knew from the uh, nuclear inspectors that the Iranians were removing centrifuges that seemed for some reason to have failed. So you could put together something that happened in the past. And once the code got out, the Iranians knew about it, of course. In the case of a story we wrote about attacks on the, or efforts against the North Korean missile program, not all of which was cyber, some of which was electronic warfare, you saw a series of failures. And the question was, was this very high rate of failures because of cyber and something was going on, or was it just because the North Koreans were bad at this suddenly? So I guess there could be cases where you hear about a program that's in the future, but most of those that I've seen have actually been things that have executed already. You're wrong though.
0: That's, that, what you just said is not what you claim it to be. Those are ongoing operational issues. In the case from what you say about Iran, it was not from what the newspapers say done but it would finish a lot more quickly if it's suddenly on the front page of the New York Times and then the Iranians say, thank you very much, we found all this stuff, let's build our nuclear weapons, let's continue enriching. In the case of North Korea, if it is an ongoing thing that is not over and the New York Times publishes something that says, oh, this might be the case, and the bad guys go rooting through all of it and they find it,
3: you're like, well, the operation's done now. And I will usually find when reporters come and you explain, if you're allowed to, that an operation is ongoing, that you usually win some time.
2: You always let me win, didn't you? Always, <laughs> yeah.
0: You win some time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that will mean we'll give you a week and then – or, or, or a months, month or three months.
3: Okay, a so means or you bought
0: years. three yeah. months of national security until The New York Times publishes something that will end – what otherwise could have been a capability that maybe even prevented you from having to use kinetic real force too, right? Think about that, it doesn't mean that the threat goes away and if we had something that was not based on kinetic force, that's like physical bombing, you know, there there are a lot of ways to think about this. So again, like I'm all for transparency, right? I keep I, I teach at the Kennedy School. I like preach on all this stuff too, but it's not as easy as just saying the public has a right to know about what all offensive cyber operations are going on.
2: I really appreciate it, honestly, and I, I mean I think it's true for all my colleagues. I when reporters like yourself would come and talk to us before they would actually yeah. go out. And that is an enormously important stage, I think. And it, I recognize, I mean, look, each of us are going to come with our particular perspective um, and our institutional interests that we're trying to promote effectively through the conversation. And at the very least, you know, having an opportunity to be heard on these issues and what the ramifications are is, is critical. One of the things that I think you know, it it seems to me, and again, you will know this better, and and I think it'd be interesting to hear your views on this, is just whether or not the landscape for you from a reporting perspective has changed over the decades so that it makes it harder for you to accept what you think are reasonable arguments because you know that it's going to get reported through some other means. And I think that's something that, you know, I, I have been curious just how much you believe that has made it more challenging to have these conversations and to well, the result. speed
3: up of the of the news cycles made a difference and in a non-cyber case we held for three years a story about a mm-hmm. secret u.s. operation to help secure pakistan's nuclear weapons and this was at the request of the bush administration yeah. so it was and the president himself got involved in the discussion president bush did to persuade us to hold it and we Made a reason they made a reasonable case that had we revealed it, it would make it easier for the Taliban to get at vulnerable Pakistani systems. Now, as it turned out, it ended up getting revealed in the Pakistani play, press. And when we went back and said we've now got to run the story, they said, "Oh, are you still holding that? Really?" So, um, so yes, there are other elements of this so we've got about uh so 22 or 20 david,
0: david david is great he also teaches at the Kennedy school it's great that he's there and talks from his perspective he's a great mentor and everything too so we have this like you know tense love relationship where <laughs> we've been in lots
3: of different situations together well i want to thank both of you because it's not easy to come out here and have a conversation as Eli and I were discussing months ago when we were first talking about this to have a conversation on offensive cyber it takes some uh, uh, fortitude just to come out and talk about it you know at this level at at this depth for an hour and a half and I appreciate the fact that you guys have given us such insight into how the decisions are made and such willingness to sort of question the the frameworks that we've, we've had along the way so thank you very much for doing it Thank I you. loved Eli's
2: original email, which was something like, I don't think that you're going to will you be, I'm not sure if you'll be able to say anything, but we'd really like you to speak on this."
3: I think Eli's conversation with me was something like, could we find two people crazy enough to have this conversation <laughs> in public? And then we said, That's wow, us. yeah, sure. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> also, we should thank David. I give yes. him, you
0: know, you. a lot of crap all the time. He's been really important and y'all can learn a lot from him. And like Avril said, it it couldn't be better said than how important it is for there to be good, strong press coverage on this stuff. Well, thanks much.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for providing audio of the discussion. If you haven't yet, please give the podcast a review and a five-star rating wherever you found us and share the podcast with your friends and followers on Facebook and Twitter. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.